Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 408. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show we have lined up for you today. Two stories, two interviews, and a fact article. Yes. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up, we have an interview with Animatronic from Scissor Sisters. Yes, talking about her book, Robot Universe. That's right, Animatronic. How cool is that? Then up is... Short bit of fiction, Summer Home by Sue Burke, originally appeared in Asimov's magazine. Then Kate Darlin, who is an expert in robot ethics at MIT Media Lab. I do an interview with Kate. Then the main fiction is An Immense Darkness by Eric James Stone. Then right at the end, we have Science News, Mr. JJ Campanella. That's all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Don't forget, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. 20 years in the IT industry, helping you with your little problems that possibly could be turning into big problems. Big thank you to Clive and Diane. So first up is an interview I did with Anna Metronic from the Sister Sisters. Anna's got a new book out, Robot Universe, and it just sounded fantastic. So, Anna... Now, this isn't just a fad. I mean, it seems from what I've been reading about you, do you know what I mean, and y- your name as well, that this this affair almost with robots has, has been lifelong. It, it has been. It has been. Um, some of my first memories of connecting to pop culture revolve around science fiction and Star Wars and, yes, shiny mechanical people. <laughs> So why the, why did you want to you know because like you say your scissor sisters you you know you're embedded in all that kind of culture but why did you want to put a book together? I've always loved writing. It's something that um, I I really enjoy doing. I actually consider myself a much more confident prose writer than I am a song or poetry writer. So uh, it's something that I really really love doing. And it was my agent actually who suggested. Uh, that I write a book, and um, they, the agency that that represents me, uh, has has a relationship with this publisher. And she said, "Well, what do you think? Why don't you just go in and have a meeting, and uh, talk to them about your interests, and and see what happens?" And uh, I had a great meeting uh, with a lady named Hannah, who works at at Octopus Publishing, and um, told her some of my interests and pitched a couple of ideas, and one of them was on robots and technology. And this is just such an amazing time um, with 
you know, we've already got robots in over 10 million homes via the Roomba uh, vacuum cleaner. So uh, we are sort of poised at the beginning of really seeing robots in everyday life. So I thought it was a a, a very timely subject and and one that um, one that I was I was only too excited to dig into for a few months writing it. Where do you start then, you know, putting together such like a comprehensive list of all these robots? You know, are you, do you sit down and think, right, I've got me favourites, but then there's there's others that I don't even know about yet? Yeah, yeah. Well, I tried to be quite comprehensive and really choose robots that add a lot to the to the overall conversation. Um, and there's some there's some really, really interesting uh, stories about robots. Most of those those stories are are written by white men, and so it, I thought it was very important to, to bring in to bring in other voices. And uh, you know, obviously, in the world that we live in, we're we're getting more and more uh, varied and interesting voices into the conversation. So I, I really wanted to uh, really wanted to get be as comprehensive as possible. Was there any of these robots that you know you, you weren't aware of when you kind of put it together? You know, you're coming across them now for the very first time. Um, oh, definitely. Um, actually, Baymax uh, from Big Hero Six was one that I um, hadn't heard of before, and a friend suggested um, suggested I watch that movie, and um, and I just thought it was I, I thought it was so fantastic. Um, another another one that I ended up loving so, so much, and I really think it's my favorite robot film of all time, uh, is a Spanish film called Eva from 2011. Um, it is just such a beautiful movie, and it's everything that AI should have been. It has all the, all the heart that was missing from, from AI, and it's all about the emotional programming of robots, which I thought was a, an incredibly interesting way to, uh, to talk about AI, and uh, such a good movie. Highly, highly recommend that one. Well, you, you, you nearly answered my question there, because I was going to say, like, out of, you know, the $100 question there, which is your favorite robot? Well, I'm going to cheat a little bit and choose uh, somebody who's not actually a robot. She's a cyborg, um, and that's Jamie Summers, the six, the, the uh, bionic oh, woman. God, I, yeah. You forget, don't you? Do you know what I mean? It's like they've been embedded in a culture, robots for so long. You know what I mean? Kind of fantasy or even real. You forget. I forgot all about that. Yeah, and um, and uh, I was making the list, and it was it was you know I had to make a list of 100 and and. Um, and you know things would pop up. I remember, um, uh, you know, sitting bolt upright in bed one night after after you know uh, remembering Inspector Gadget. I was like, oh, I got I got to put Inspector Gadget in there. Jeez, so I got I got to do that. You know, so you and um, and there was a lot of you know watching films and. Um, and kind of, you know, trying to trying swapping out one for another, and and um, yeah, really trying to, like I said earlier, be as comprehensive as possible. So it's like, okay, well, uh, I've already got a ton of murderous robots 
that hate our guts. So maybe I have to take one out and put another in this section and da da da. So um, yeah, there was a little bit of juggling, but I but I think I came up with a pretty good list. I see you've got Crichton in there from Red Dwarf. So there, there, that's you've, you've, you've hit my you've hit my buttons there with that one. That is fantastic. You know? I love Red Dwarf. I love Red Dwarf and. Um, and I think I might actually be related to uh, to cat uh, because <laughs> I'm a very cat-like human being as well. <laughs> you know, you were just sitting there when you were kind of juggling with them. Then, so d- d- did you have to kind of just think, right? I've I've got I've got too m- many murderous ones. I miss. Did you miss any out, or that you didn't really want to miss out? Um, well, um, I I'm qu- I'm quite partial to the. It's a very very strange movie, and I and I definitely wanted to write about it, but. Um, there is the uh, the film Demon Seed uh, with Julie Christie, oh, uh, who yes. is. Do you remember that one? And yes. she's uh, yeah, she's she's held hostage by a robot house um, that that becomes sentient, and then he impregnates her. And there's a there's a a, a weird sort of yeah robot human hybrid baby that's born at the end, which is. Just, <laughs> <laughs> really amazing. I really wanted to write about that. Um, of course, we could probably do an entire book just on the robots in Isaac Asimov's stories. Um, Cutie um, is one that I definitely wanted to write about, but um, I, I shelved Cutie in in um, in favor of of uh, some other some other robots that I thought were were uh, similar to him. Yeah, I mean, you touched on Asimov there with like robots, you know, in this kind of almost like the humanoid robots. Where do you think, you know, in our kind of real world thing, where do you think this is going? Do you think we're going, we're going to go down this kind of humanoid looking robot way? Are we going to go more into, say, the, the Siri, you know, internet of everything where everything is connected, you know, and there's a voice in your house almost? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think those sorts of technologies are already, are already, very much here. I mean, we're going to have, yeah, people are already talking to their phones um, and having conversations with Siri. There is um, an app you can get um, where it, that's a conversation app with AI. It's not, I've, I've, I bought it. It's not really, <laughs> it's not really great yet. So, so that, um, that technology is, uh, is, is still, Still not quite perfect, and um, and then of course there are the really really incredibly lifelike looking robots from Hanson Robotics. Um, they are the people who did. I don't know if you've ever seen the Philip K. Dick robot. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, made to look just like Philip K. Dick, and you can actually uh, have a conversation uh, with him. Um, sometimes he will mishear you and say some very very strange sort of non sequiturs, uh, but. Yeah, they're definitely they're definitely coming, and there are places where you can already interact with robots. There's a place in Madrid or just outside Madrid where these small um, R two D two they sort of look like they're like a cross between R two D two and the light cycles from Tron. They're these small uh, red round robots called Sega uh, that will, if you type in your, your, uh, where you're going into a little kiosk, it'll come to you and it will show you where you're going and it will play a little bit of music as it, as it shows you along and then it'll wish you a, a, a nice day and return to its docking station. Fabulous. <laughs> where do you think then, Anna, in like, you know, our kind of society now, do we need 
ethical guidelines? Because I was talking, you know, and it'll be on this show as well. I was talking to Kate Darlin, who's a researcher at MIT, and she's yeah. doing experiments where, you know, you get these cute little animals and they're kind of robots and they interact with you. And then she was asking, you know, after an hour's interaction with these robots, you had a few people in this kind of workshop. She was asking them to kill them, you know, like to tear them to bits and stab them and kill them. And she says our findings were fascinating where they couldn't do it, although it was just this cute little thing, you know, but it was still wires and, and fur. They couldn't yeah. actually kill them. Do you know what I mean? And she, was, she got right into the kind of the violence of robots and how we kind of, you know, take violence out on robots. Do you think we might need, because she was, you know, sure she, you, you needed kind of ethical guidelines now. In, do you think anything about that? I do, and I and I'm particularly um, particularly interested in uh, military applications for robots. It's definitely something that we have to be very conscious and aware of, very diligent. We must make sure that the power of uh, the many does not transfer to the power of the few. Um, if you put uh, and and there must always be um, a, a human mind and consciousness on a trigger. I, I believe that, you know, weaponized autonomous robots should never, ever, ever be put into, into play. It's just too, it's too risky. Um, there's too many, um, there's too many variables. Uh, what if the side that has all the autonomous killing machines loses? <laughs> then, then you've got fields full of killer autonomous robots, um, <laughs> literal literal minefields of uh, of uh, terminators. So yeah, I definitely there are definitely ethical questions. Um, I met a really interesting um, artist. He is really the one of the world's first real cyborgs his name is neil harbison oh i think I, was born I think in, I, yes i think i've did, on the internet I'd seen him yeah and he he was born without the ability to sense color so he uh, sees the world completely in grayscale and so he had uh an antenna and it comes out of his head and the antenna senses light and um, transfers the frequency of the light into a chip that's embedded into his skull, which then vibrates with the frequency of the color, which he hears through his skull, through bone conduction. And it's just fascinating. And so, obviously, to get a surgeon to uh, implant this in his brain, he had to uh, not only do it anonymously, he had to rent the, uh, you know, the medical theater in order to do it. He had to uh, hire the surgeon privately. He had to pr privately hire all the nurses. Um, so, uh, of course, those, those ethical questions are there. And, um, and yeah, I, I, I definitely, um, I definitely am aware of them and, and interested. Before you go then, you know, I'm hoping now, you know, you're dipping your toes in kind of the science fiction field there with the book. Is it, have you got any more projects lined up? Well, I've been, um, for the last, oh gosh, <laughs> five years, I've been working on a comic book, actually. Um, and it's, it's, it's grown and, and changed over the last five years. It's definitely, um, 
it started out simple and then has just sort of snowballed. Um, and it's based on, it's actually based on uh, the work of H.P. Lovecraft, the horror writer from the early 20th century. Right. Um, and I really love his stuff. Um, and, um, and I, yeah, I've, I've been working on that for a while and it's, it's really, it's really time to, to finish that and get, get the right artist and get that one out. It'd be lovely if you come back on there and, you know, kind of talk to her about it. If, if it comes, you know, if you get it, get it off the ground. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I'd love to. Well, Anna, it's been, honestly, it's been fascinating, you know, coming on and, and talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. There you go. How about that? Big thank you to Animatronic for coming on and talking about a book. I'll put a link on the site if you want to pop over, starshipsover.com, and you'll be able to go over there and get your pre-order of that book by Anna Robot Universe. Like I say, big thank you. Next up is a little bit of short fiction, Summer Home by Sue Burke. Sue Burke was born in Wisconsin and lived briefly in Texas before moving to Madrid, Spain in 1999. Her fiction and poetry have appeared in a number of magazines and anthologies and she's worked for decades as a journalist and editor. She attended Clarion East and she's a member of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. Again, you pop over the site and you can get a link to Sue's work. Stories narrated by G.S. R. Quinn, who is an actor, writer, musician and pessimistic optimist. He lives in Portland, Oregon and spends a large portion of his time producing The Overcast, a speculative fiction podcast featuring breathtaking stories from the Pacific Northwest and beyond. And I'll put a link on to that because it's a whole big URL. So a big thank you to G.S. R. Quinn. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Summer Home by Sue Burke Read by J.S. Arquin Things to do 1. Get a new summer home. No, a winter home. Somewhere south, like Arizona. I never want to see ice again. 2. Decide what to take from the old summer home, now that the radiation has subsided. One person can go back per household for 30 minutes. My wife wants only an heirloom photo album. I want the oil painting by our son hanging in the bedroom. One of his first professional works, a hyper-realist portrayal of the house. Just to say I took something. Nothing seems important, really. We get to take 20 pounds of stuff. I'll have time and weight to spare, I tell my wife. Maybe I can help a neighbor. I still feel so bad about Heather, she says. I nod. She lived two houses south of us and died in the accident. I saw it, and it was no accident. Not that I'll say anything different. 3. Remember what really happened. Heather and I were at Blackbird Beach. More underbrush than sand, so no one goes there, especially on a Tuesday afternoon. Something fell from the sky and crashed so near that the ground shook. 
A plane, she said. She had been facing that direction and saw it. We've got to help them. She leaped up, straightening her dress, and started running. I stood up to put on my jeans. I love my wife, but, well, I'm not perfect. A gray, foggy trail in the sky led to the woods next to the beach. Heather reached the plane first and got close. Trees lay flat or knocked sideways from the impact, roots in the air. From what I could see, I thought it was some sort of experimental model, all black. Not just sooty as if it had burned, but blacker, like a stealth aircraft, like it was sucking in light. It had wings, I think, but I'm not sure how many. Overall, maybe the size of a modest private jet. That's all I remember. I really didn't get long to look. Just a few seconds. It was buzzing softly. Then something went bang like a rifle. I hit the dirt. Military training, it sticks with you even into retirement. Get down, I shouted to Heather, but she stood there staring, reaching a hand toward it. Another bang, and another. Icy fog was spreading out from the plane, frosting weeds as it flowed over them. I put two and two together and guessed that trees were splitting the way they do when their sap freezes in winter. Cryogenic temperatures were emanating from that aircraft thing. What was its payload? Heather screamed, jerked her hand back, and fell. I ran to help her, but when I got there and grabbed her hand, the cold hit my fingers so hard and fast, I knew I was getting frostbite. I yanked my hand to free it, and her hand broke off at the wrist, hit the ground, and shattered. The fog kept flowing outwards, carrying an acid stench. She stared up at me, but by then, her eyes might have been frozen open. I turned and ran, flat out, the half mile to my house. On the way, a squadron of military helicopters flew overhead toward the crash. I didn't know if I should feel relieved or even more terrified. They'd arrived much too fast. My wife stood on the porch. What crashed? Did you see it? I lied. No. I don't know. The army wants us to leave, so let's go. Fast. She got her purse and we jumped in the car and left. By then a Humvee was coming down our street and a soldier with a bullhorn was ordering us to evacuate. We stopped to snatch the blind old lady at the end of the block and kept going. Later that afternoon, the nuclear bomb exploded. Just a little one. The official story called it a training accident with a tactical warhead, which unleashed nattering public fury about inexcusable carelessness and incompetence. Conspiracy theorists say there were similar accidents in several parts of the world at about the same time, so something sinister happened. But they're nuts. It was simple, gross military incompetence. That's my official story. 4. Make an appointment for another required medical checkup for possible radiation illness.
That's what they tell us. Report every three months until further notice, and call a special hotline immediately if we notice any change in our health. At the first checkup, two days after the accident, I told the doctor exactly what had happened to me. Duty again. They need to know whatever there is to know. I have my own secret hotline now, and my hand has been examined twenty different ways. Also in secret, I reported for interrogation. A team grilled me for hours, asking not just about what I saw, but everything I knew about the area, myself, and Heather. I found myself saying a lot of sweet things about her, and missing her more than I'd realized. They told me nothing about what really happened. Not that I'd expected them to. When they were done, a captain, a middle-aged woman whose name I deliberately forgot, asked me to keep the whole thing classified. Well, you can see I have my own reasons for that. I'm not especially proud of myself. She nodded. I understand. And I'm sorry for your loss. I appreciate that. Five. Get something to remember Heather by. Something that won't make my wife suspicious or get me arrested for looting. Maybe one of those pretty little rocks she used in the garden she loved so much. I can set it in the sun and then hold it. Warm and smooth and solid. The way she had been. Before. Six. Find a way to sleep at night. There you go. Big thank you to Sue Burke. Don't forget, copyright is Sue. Sue, thank you so much. And G.S. Arquin, what a voice. That is just... That came out of the blue for me when I listened to that. Thank you so much. Next up is a little interview I did with Kate Darling. There was an article in, I think it was on the BBC Futures site by Richard Fisher. And he was talking to Kate Darling. He was talking about Kate Darling. And his title was, Is it okay? This is what caught my eye. Is it okay to torture or murder a robot? And when I seen that, I thought, Oh, I've just got to have a little chat with Kate just to kind of, you know, find out, you know, go a little bit more, dig a little bit more deeper and just find out what it is about, you know, these kind of, these ethics for robots, you know, we're getting in this kind of new age, the dawn of a new age there, for one for a better description. Kate, why do we have such strong emotional bonds, do you think, with robots and machines? Because it seems a bit of a, a bizarre, you know, when I say these words myself there, it seems a bit of a bizarre, you know, sentence to say. It is bizarre. Um, we... We know that machines are just machines, and yet we've always had kind of this tendency to anthropomorphize other entities, you know, whether, whether it's objects, stuffed animals, or, or actual animals, making them uh, more human-like, projecting lifelike qualities onto, onto anything, really. Um, so we have that, but then also it seems that we're biologically hardwired to respond to things that move around kind of autonomously in our physical space. And so that's something that robots do that I think that we respond to biologically and that makes us project onto them. 
Uh, I seen it. You know, I came across your name by I think it was Richard Fisher writing on the BBC Future site, and it was just fascinating. You know, and more so for me was your workshops. You know, tell us about your workshops. <laughs> yeah, so I guess it started when I did a workshop with my friend Hannes Gosselt at a conference called Lift in Geneva, where we gave groups of participants these really adorable. Um, robot dinosaur toys called Pleos. And the Pleos are, are really cute and they respond when you touch them and they kind of cry when you hold them up by the tail and, and strike them. So we had the participants play with them and name them and, and do things with them. And then um, we had them torture and kill them. <laughs> okay, that <laughs> and, just sounds fab when you, even when you see it, you know what I mean? It's just, it's quite bizarre. And what was your findings? Well, uh, it was actually a little bit more dramatic than we even expected. Um, it was very difficult to get the participants to even hit the plios. And then we had to really kind of <laughs> force them to, to go even further. Um, and, and it was just interesting. I mean, we came out of that really feeling that people respond to these cues that they're getting from these lifelike things, even if they know that they're just robots. It's it's a question I want to ask you though, is, is it now, do you think, you know, at this time in, in our kind of lives and, you know, the technology, is it important to start talking about r robot ethics? I think it is. So robot ethics is, is something that I view as less about their robots and more about ourselves and our society. And what we're seeing now is that robots are moving from where they've been kind of present behind the scenes and manufacturing and all these places, moving into all these areas where they interact with humans. And so we're already seeing robots enter into the military and hospitals and situations like elderly care and child education. So these are already a lot of contexts that bring up some ethical issues. And I think that we need to start seriously thinking about some questions that robotic technology raises in these contexts, like, you know, responsibility for harm, um, or, you know, how robotic care is going to impact human autonomy and dignity. Then there's all these questions of privacy and data security with household robots. There's questions of emotional manipulation. And then, you know, my favorite is the questions of empathy and violent behavior towards robots that are very lifelike. Is, is it now then, Kate, is there a time where it, it's quite acceptable to kill or murder a robot you know i'm i'm seeing them kind of in, in almost brutal terms but is there a do we have a, a right now to to kind of kill a robot <laughs> we do i think killing and murdering are very loaded terms i mean it shows that we're <laughs> anthropomorphizing the robot when we talk about it that way um so so i've i've somewhat provocatively put forth that we might want to consider protecting lifelike robots from certain types of harm and abuse and that's not because the robots themselves deserve rights and it also doesn't encompass like uh you know turning the robot off or you know whatever you see as the equivalent of murder because we don't even protect living animals from death um but what i'm talking about is kind of the unnecessary abuse that that elicits a lifelike response of suffering. So the same way that we don't allow people to swing cats around by their tails or burn them alive for fun, um, we, we might want to also not allow people to do that with robots because we already have robot toys that will whimper and cry when you strike them, like these Pleos that I mentioned. And so one question is, you know, if your kid gets used to hitting that toy, wouldn't you worry that he or she might do that to the dog? 
And so if research shows that it desensitizes people to mistreat these robots and makes them less hesitant to mistreat animals, then that might be a reason to actually restrict people's behavior. I heard a story, I read a story about an army commander. I don't know if you've, you've heard this one where it was like a bomb disposal robot and it, it kind of had to stand on the bombs to like detonate them. And it was going through this kind of patch and field and it blew, you know, half of it got destroyed and, and it started kind of doing this almost like limp drag to the next one, <laughs> you know. And I think that the, the commander in charge pulled the job because it looked like it was, you know, suffering this robot, you know. And yeah. I just, it's just quite a, a bizarre, you know, a mechanical thing and have that even on, you know, the army or, you know, or some kind of, you know, forces where they're, you would have thought, immune to that kind of thing. Uh, it's true. I, we, we do respond very strongly. And there, there are even more stories from the military. Um, Julie Carpenter has a book about this coming out where soldiers will become emotionally attached to the bomb disposal robots that they work with. And these are robots that aren't even... So the one that you mentioned was really interesting because it was it was shaped like a stick in like a, a stick-legged insect, one of those insects with like six legs, and uh, so it already had sort of these like qualities that didn't look like it had legs. But there are even less uh, less uh, anthropomorphically designed robots that just like roll around on wheels, but the soldiers will still become very attached to them because they're working with them, and and they they'll have funerals for them and. There, there are some amazing stories, um, and that's that's super interesting because those robots aren't even designed to elicit that type of response. And then if you then add a design that specifically tries to target people's emotional buttons, you can get even further. Is it is it is there any kind of range of age that is more susceptible? You know, I'm just thinking about you know, is children more or the you know, elderly are they more susceptible to this kind of emotion with robots? That's that's a really interesting question. Um, so some of the roboticists that I work with at MIT have children, and you know these kids growing up with you know, a roboticist mother, they understand perfectly that the robots are only programmed and that they're not alive. But they suspend their disbelief. They treat them like social actors anyway. Um, and on the other hand, so do adults. So so I'd say that children are more susceptible, but they're also not stupid. And it's definitely not just kids who are susceptible to treating robots kind of like they're alive subconsciously. Are we in in some way though kind of jumping the gun because you know it's like emotion you know it, you don't get emotion over a toaster or a you know a Hoover kind of thing but yet again I've read a report where people are naming the the Hoover you know these kind of little robotic Hoovers and, and little things like that. <laughs> it's true, yeah. People become very fond of them in a way that they don't become fond of household appliances generally. Um, and we also, we did this experiment with little bug-like toys called hex bugs. And they, like, they're, they're not very cute or anything. They just kind of move around like beetles or cockroaches. But people with, we found that people with high empathy responded really strongly and were very hesitant to smash the robots, even though they, they perfectly know that these things aren't alive. So it happens with very simple technology, and then it just gets stronger the more that you really target people's responses. We touched on this before, you know, but it, it can, you know, in some ways take a bit of a sinister turn. Do you know what I mean? And, and you were mentioning, like, say, a parent hitting a robot and this, and then, you know, you could even go even further into the kind of dark recesses where you've got, like, you know, 
paedophiles torturing children like robots? Is that, that, where does society kind of even um, start with that kind of attitudes? Yeah, exactly. I mean, so, so like with animals, it's pretty clear that we don't allow that type of behavior, you know, whether it's in the privacy of your own home or not. But, you know, the, the whole sex and violence with robots is a really interesting question. You know, I, I think, I think it, it becomes, a little bit more despicable if, you know, a parent is killing or, or torturing a robot in front of a child. But you could argue that people in the privacy of their own homes should be able to, you know, beat up a robot that's responding in a lifelike way. Um, and it's an interesting question because we actually don't know if that's harmful to people or not. I'm guessing that it might be harmful given how we subconsciously treat robots as alive. So it might desensitize people, but it could also prove to be an outlet for undesirable behavior. And I would, I would prefer that we have some sort of evidence of harm or that we look into this more before we, you know, make a, (laughs) make a decision as society as to what's right or wrong. Uh, Although that's not usually the way that laws get passed. From your point of view, Kieran, what are you are you doing? Is this your kind of dear job, looking into kind of people, you know, how people react with them, robots? Yeah, I think so. I'm I'm very interested in research on robots and empathy, and I've been looking at at violent behavior in particular because I, I it's my main re- research interest, but also I think it's a very important question, and we already have the technology that requires asking this question. Is there anything else, you know, like, see, you're studying violent behavior. Is there anything else that, you know, came up that you didn't expect? Um, I guess it just continuously surprises me, you know, how strongly people respond to robots, even though they know that it's silly and they know the robots aren't alive. And so I'm just consistently kind of flabbergasted by this. Um, And... I also think that it's not going to go away anytime soon uh, because it really seems to me to be a kind of a biological response that people are having rather than just people freaking out because it's a new technology that they're not used to yet. So I have a feeling that it's going to continue to to be uh, surprising and that more and more people are going to become aware of this effect. I mean, I think I think you're spot on right there. You know, it's never going to go away because you know technology is always advancing. So these things each year are just going to get better and better, and maybe more lifelike, but certainly more emotional. You know, so yeah. we've we've got to kind of, I think you're right. Start thinking now about these things. Just a last question, Kate. Where, from your personal point of view, where do you think? It is, is it going to go down there where we need these guidelines set in now? Or do you think we've, you know, we've still got a kind of a little bit to go where we can kind of work things out? <laughs> well, I think, you know, the law is always way far behind where technology is. Unfortunately, I view that as a problem. Um, I do think we have some time to discuss these issues before these robots become ubiquitous. But I would prefer that we start talking about them sooner rather than later. Um, because again, it takes a while for the law to catch up to technology, and we already have this technology, and it's already happening. It's just a matter of convincing people that it's an important question. Kate, I mean, it's just raising up some amazing, you know, questions and debates there. And like I say, what a job to kind of delve into it and kind of study it as well, you know, because it's like you say, you're on the kind of precipice. You know what I mean? It's all going to start getting more and more and more, you know, and what, what, a, what a wonderful job. <laughs> I think so. I think it's fascinating. Well, Kate, it's been lovely to talk to you, honestly. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. 
There you go. Big thank you, kid. That was it. Was lovely chatting. I could have I could have chatted more all the time there. So, on to the main fiction, and it is Eric James Stone with his story "An Immense Darkness," which originally appeared in Analog Magazine. Eric, we've actually played a story by Eric. I'd say about a year ago there now. Eric is a Nebula Award winner, Hugo Award nominee, and Writers of the Future contest winner. Eric Stone has published stories in Years Best SF15, Analog, Nature, and Kevin J. Anderson's Bloodlight anthologies, among other venues. His debut novel, a science fiction thriller entitled Unforgettable, is forthcoming from Bain. One of Eric's earliest memories is of the Apollo launch on television. Thanks to his father's old science fiction collection, go on, Eric grew up reading Asimov and Heinlein. Eric attended Austin Scott Carr's literary boot camp and the Odyssey Writing Workshop. He lives in Utah. And again, Eric's website is ericjamesstone.com if you want to pop over there. This story is narrated by Rob Matheny. Rob Matheny is a producer, narrator, voice actor, blogger, writer and podcaster for the land of food carts, micro-brews and voodoo donuts, Portland, Oregon. As a co-host of the Grim Tidings podcast, Rob delivers a weekly dose of Grim Dark to the masses. His podcast and propagation doesn't stop there. Nay, he says. He's also the assistant producer for the Adventures in SF Sci-Fi Publishing podcast. Rob's also a husband and a father of four. Team, <laughs> you've been through that lot there, Rob. My two, two dribblers up the wall. Rabbit book nerd, metalhead, geek culture enthusiast, skilled Wheel of Fortune player, and a social media fiend. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present... An Immense Darkness by Eric James Stone Narrated by Rob Matheny Like most nights over the past few weeks, Antonio stays in the lab for hours after his co-workers have gone home to the people they go home to. The person he used to go home to isn't there anymore. She isn't anywhere. There wasn't even a body to bury, but an echo of Shanisha lingers here at the lab. So he stays. Tonight's a good night. Whatever project the astronomy department was working on for the last five days seems to be over, so there's enough number-crunching capacity in Texas State University's supercomputer to run the brain simulator in almost real time. Antonio starts the base program then loads Shanisha's file. He hesitates too long about whether to turn the speech option off. Hello? Who's there? At less than real-time speed, the voice coming from the speaker doesn't sound right. The speech algorithms adjust the pitch, but they can't stop her from sounding slow, like she's struggling to think of the right words, like her mind's not all there, which it isn't. The real Shanisha was brilliant. Hey, babe, it's me, says Antonio. Running the calibration test, so just relax. Is the other me there? She asks. No, she's out of town. The Miami trip? Yes. He doesn't want to think about Miami. So don't worry, she can't catch you flirting with me. She giggles. Tonio, you are such a bad man. They talk for almost an hour before her mental matrix loses stability and he's forced to end the simulation. Shanisha's file is several months old recorded before she wrote the code that integrated self-correcting feedback algorithms into the matrix during the brain scan. They never got around to recording her again. Always too busy perfecting the process to waste time making another imperfect copy. He reloads her file and starts again. 
she doesn't know she's dead. And for a while, he can forget. Almost. Antonio wakes as someone enters the lab. His cheek is hot and sticky from the vinyl of the couch where he slept. Jody Lee just shakes her head at him as he sits up and straightens his cramped legs. He can't remember if this makes two nights in a row he hasn't gone home. And he sniffs at his armpits. Bad. If today is Wednesday, he has a neuro-cybernetics class to teach. He checks his cell phone. It is Wednesday, and he has seven unanswered calls and three new voicemail messages. They can wait. I'm going home, he says to Jody. Good, she answers, without looking up from her workstation. Before he gets to the door, a pale blonde woman in a navy blue suit opens it. Her eyes flicker down, then up to meet his. Dr. Antonio Reyes, she says, a dash of New York City in her accent. That's me, he says. Wendy Bricker, she holds out a hand for him to shake. I'm with the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York. He shakes her hand by road and looks at her blankly, unsure why a lawyer has come to his work. The patent case was settled out of court last year, and he hasn't had so much as a speeding ticket since he was 17. I tried calling, she says. Office, home, cell. I've been busy, he says. Could we speak in private? Your office, maybe? Her heels clack on the tile floor behind him as he leads the way. Could she be here about Shanisha's death? He had no more information about that than anyone who watched the news. He points to the spare chair in his office, and she dusts it off before sitting, crossing her legs. How can they help you, miss... Her name has slipped from his mind. He sits at his desk, then turns 90 degrees to face her. Bricker, she says. I understand you have developed a method for scanning people's minds. Not just me, he says. My whole team, which now has an unfillable hole in it. She gives him a brisk nod. Your team. We need to use your technology to read someone's mind. No, he says. This is a matter of national security, Dr. Reyes. She leans forward, her blue eyes earnest. Millions of lives could be at stake. Doesn't matter, he says. This isn't a device for reading anyone's mind. It makes a digital copy of the brain. That digital copy can be run in the simulation. It's a way of studying how the brain functions, not telepathy. But once you've made a copy of the brain, couldn't I just search for certain information held inside of it? There are a hundred billion neurons in the brain, some of which have thousands of connections. Our understanding of how all that works to create memory and personality is still rudimentary. You're old enough to remember when music came on CDs, right? She nods. Imagine looking at a CD in order to figure out what notes the violin in an orchestra is playing. Impossible, but put it in a CD player, and you get the symphony. Our brain scan is not like a CD of your brain. You can't just pick the data out of it. You have to put it in a brain simulator. Realizing he's gone into lecture mode, Antonio shuts up. So if you scan someone's brain and put it in a brain simulator, could you extract the information? If the brain can remember it and is willing to communicate the information, yes. But in that case, it's probably easier to just ask the person. He shakes his head. I know that's not what you're looking for, but it's not like we have a mind scanner you can just put on street corners to look for people thinking terrorist thoughts. He can tell how much T has changed in the past 25 days, because the idea of such a device does not fill him with repugnance. If having mind scanners in Miami would have prevented Shanisha's death, he would have gladly let his privacy be invaded. That's not what we need, says Bricker. But unfortunately, it doesn't sound like what you have will work either. I'm sorry to have wasted your time. She gets to her feet. Sorry I couldn't help, he says. 
Bricker pauses as she opens the door. Dr. Reyes, I just want you to know I'm doing the best I can to bring the terrorists who killed your fiancé to justice. This brain scan you wanted, it's for that case? He says. She closes the door and turns back to him. You didn't listen to the voicemails I left? No. His face grows warm with embarrassment. I haven't been paying much attention to things lately. You've heard that we caught Abdul Motel al-Razi. At his blank look, she adds. The mastermind behind the nuke in Miami? I hadn't heard, he says. Three days ago, in New York. It was on all the news. She seems incredulous that anyone could not know. And it's his mind you want to scan? The mind of a man who killed Shanisha? What darkness looms inside it? Even knowing it is foolish, Antonio imagines a black cloud appearing in the scans. His associates claim to have nukes. Any details he could give us could prevent another Miami. But he's lawyered up and he won't say a word. I read an article about your work in New Scientist last year, and I figured it might be worth a shot. Her brow furrows. I seem to remember something about the brain existing in a virtual reality. Yes, we do that so we can examine how the mind interacts with the senses. It also allows us to communicate. Communicate? What would he say to the man who killed Shanisha, along with a quarter million others? Would it be possible to create a virtual reality in which Al-Razi believes he has escaped custody, so he contacts... No, Antonio says. The simulation isn't that good. There are video games on the market that are better. Even those, you can distinguish from reality. The brain knows it's a fake environment. There must be some way to extract the information, she says. We can't let it happen again. Wait, he says. Rage he did not know he felt seeps up inside him. There are ways to make someone talk, right? You could force him to reveal what he knows. Dr. Reyes, she says. I don't know what would have happened had the military or CIA captured him quietly. I don't think I want to know. But he was captured in a very public raid by the FBI, and he has a team of lawyers. We can't torture the information out of him. We can't even ask him a question without his counsel present. Antonio smiles. He hasn't smiled in weeks, and his smile feels wrong. Have you ever played video games? She frowns. Of course. Ever played a video game where you go around shooting at people? They're called first-person shooters? Yes, I've only played a few times. My brother's really into them. Your brother ever kill anyone in those games? She chuckles wryly. <laughs> hundreds at least, maybe thousands. And as a consequence of all those hundreds, maybe thousands of killings, have you ever been arrested for murder? Of course not. No actual human beings were killed. Antonio nods. Precisely. They're just simulations, not real. Ones and zeros inside a computer. A scanned brain is the same, just data, like a video game. It could be a video game of interrogation. No lawyers to stop you from asking questions. No civil rights groups monitoring treatment. And I can create virtual sensory input of any kind. She purses her lips for a moment, then says, I thought you said the brain could tell it was fake. Consciously, yes. But the brain still sees light where there is darkness. Hears sounds where there is only silence. He leans forward. Feels pain where there is no body. Miss Bricker does her job well, and the judge rules in favor of allowing the scan. On the theory that potentially preventing another terrorist nuke against actual humans outweighs any possibility harm done to a computer simulation. News pundits weigh in on both sides, but Antonio doesn't pay attention to them. Federal marshals fly Al-Razi to Texas to escort him to Antonio's lab. Antonio stays in his office. His team is capable of conducting the scan without him. Sitting at his desk, he closes his eyes to wonder what it would be like to be a brain in the simulator. 
From the beginning, the system has been designed to present the brain with sensory stimuli through a virtual world. It had not been designed with simulated physical pain in mind, so that would require some new programming. However, new programming might be unnecessary. It would be a simple matter to block sensory input from the virtual world. It would be better than the best sensory deprivation tank ever built. No sight, no hearing, no touch, no taste, no smell. But that was not all. No equilibrioception, the sense of balance and acceleration. No thermoception, the sense of temperature. And no proprioception, the sense of where your body parts are in relation to each other. What would a mind do cut off from all such input? How long would it be before that mind was desperate enough to do anything in order to receive some feedback? With the government having requisitioned the full use of the university's supercomputer, the simulated brain could be overclocked, made run it up to eight times its normal speed. They're finished, says Bricker. Antonio opens his eyes to see her standing in the doorway. How long before you can get the interrogation program online? She asks. He sits up and leans forward. While I'm working on that, we can start with a different approach. After just over a day of real time, ten days of the simulated brain's subjective time, its computer-generated voice pleads for contact. It cannot hear its own screams, but Antonio can, and he turns down the volume so as not to disturb the others in the lab. Bricker begins to question it about additional nuclear bombs. Her voice is the only sensory input allowed through the blocks, and the brain responds, claiming to be willing to do anything she wants. Antonio does not stay for questioning. He is not certain that the sensory deprivation will succeed, so he works on creating the perfect torture environment, one that simulates every one of the tens of thousands of pain receptors in the human body. He creates a control panel that will allow the sensation of pain to be localized or general, strong or mild. With all the receptors set to maximum, it will cause pain beyond anything any human being has ever experienced. But it will be just a simulation of pain, and a simulation of a brain. Nothing more than that. Hours later, Bricker finds him in his office. We've located and secured two more bombs. We think that's all of them. I'm glad, he says. What do you want me to do with the simulation? You can turn it off. She pauses. Although maybe we'll need it again. Can you save it in its current state? Yes. We'll also have the original file on hand in case you need to start from scratch for some reason. Our country owes you a great debt. She reaches out her hand, and he stands to shake it. You're welcome, he says. She walks to the doorframe, stops, but does not look back at him. What's in there is just a simulation, right? Just ones and zeros, right? He nods. Just ones and zeros. Right, she says. Her heels clack in the hall as she walks away. Antonio resists temptation for two nights. But on the third, he finds himself alone in the lab shortly after 1 a.m., he thinks of loading up Shanisha's scan in the brain simulator and talking to her, as he has done so many times before. Instead, he types the command to load Al-Razi's scan, the one that had already run for days of internal time inside the sensory deprivation environment. He tells himself he just wants to know why a man would do what Al-Razi did, why Shanisha died, and then he'll turn it off. Other departments are using shares of the supercomputer's processing power, but there's enough to run the simulation at normal speed. Mr. Al-Razi, Antonio says. Please, an accented voice replies. You promised to end this torment if I answered your questions. I'm someone different. You haven't answered my questions. Antonio drew breath. Why did you do it? Why kill so many innocent people? You Americans always think you are innocent. 
Shanisha never did anything to you. Your government bombs my people, invades our lands, oppresses us at every turn. She never did any of that. She wasn't involved in government. What was it your President Lincoln said? Government of the people, by the people, for the people. Who is to blame for the actions of your government? People who choose that government. As long as America oppresses my people, none of you are innocent. Antonio doesn't know how to respond, so he shuts off the microphone. He isn't sure what he had expected. An apology, maybe? Or the ravings of a madman? But Al-Razi's rationalizations make him uncomfortable. He doesn't want to hear justifications. He wants to hear Al-Razi weep with remorse. Beg for mercy. Scream. Scream. Bricker had gotten what she needed without using the torture environment Antonio had programmed. Maybe with time, the sensory deprivation environment will get Antonio what he wants. But he is impatient, so he loads the torture environment. With only 10% of the simulated pain receptors at maximum, Al-Razi begs him to stop. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'll do anything you want. But this does not satisfy Antonio. What he truly wants, Shanisha back, is not something Al-Razi can provide. At 40%, the screams become incoherent. In the physical body, overloading the pain receptors like this would cause some feedback loops that block some of the pain. But there is no simulation of such an effect. The screams make Antonio feel a little nauseated. This is just a simulation, he reminds himself. He turns off the speakers, but doesn't turn down the pain levels until about 15 minutes later. Over the next three weeks, Antonio gets to the point where he can listen to the ragged screams at 100%, followed by the insane gibberings after he dials the pain back to zero. The brain simulation is irreparably damaged by such treatment so he repeatedly restarts the Al-Razi simulation from its pre-torture status, experimenting with various escalations to see how long he can draw things out before the simulation goes insane, or how quickly he can do it. He wishes there was some way to make the real Al-Razi feel what the simulation feels. As usual, Antonio stays in the lab for hours after his co-workers have gone home. He starts the brain simulator, then loads the brain scan file. Tonio? Antonio's heart pounds. It is not supposed to be Shanisha's voice. He looks at the screen and sees he accidentally loaded her file, not Al-Razi's. Something's wrong, she says. It's completely dark, and I can't even hear my own voice. Can you hear me? He types quickly, trying to remember how to load the default environment. Is anyone there? She says. Antonio flicks on the microphone. I'm here. Oh, good she says. What's the problem? We installed a way to block sensory data, he says. Don't worry, I'm taking it off now. Why on earth would you do that? It's really freaking me out. It's complicated, he says. He does not want to explain to her. Blocking sensory input is dangerous. There's already too much chance of instability. You fixed the stability problem, he says. Right before you left for Miami. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to load you into the simulator that way. Still, I don't see any reason for it. It saved lives, he says. It was necessary. What? How? He cannot hold back from her anymore, so he tells her about her death. He explains how scanning the brain of a man who killed her prevented two more nukes. And he confesses that he loads Al-Razi's brain into the simulator 
to hear him scream and beg for mercy. Tonio, Tonio, she says. He can almost feel her caress his cheek. I know you're in pain, but what you're doing is wrong. He's just a simulation, Antonio says without thinking. Just a simulation, she says. Like me? I didn't mean that, he says. But it's true. Ones and zeros. That's all I am. No, he says. You're more than that. If I'm more than that, then you have become a monster. Then you have become a monster. I do not want to believe that my Tonio is the kind of man who tortures for pleasure. Has he become a monster? He doesn't want to believe that. But even Bricker has shown qualms about what they had done to Alrazi's simulation. And she had the justification of saving lives. Erase our files, she says. Prove that we're nothing more than ones and zeros to you. But I miss you, he says. And does this simulation really ease your pain? Or merely extend it? He cannot reply. Because he does not know. Please, Tonio, you have to let me go. For your own sake. With a few keystrokes, Antonio shuts down the simulator. He selects Shanisha's and Alrazi's files on the hard drive. With one click, he can erase them. But how can he wipe away the last remnant of the woman he loves? He can imagine her reply. If you don't, you're wiping away the man I loved. So he clicks. And the files are gone. Big thank you to Eric. Eric, thank you so much for that story. What a cracking story, sir. What a cracking one. Don't forget, copyright is Eric's and Rob. Lovely narration. Thank you so much for taking the time when he's as busy as that. Thank you so much. So next up is our very old Mr. JJ Campanella with his science news. And just before we play Jim's little section there, he, he dropped his email. He had a bad... He's, Rushed a bit then, he says he just couldn't get his audio kind of, for some strange reason there, his audio was playing up and everything like that, and just too busy to kind of get it sorted. So I, I know the feeling, Jim. Tell us about it. Greetings and lipidaceous libations, my frenetically multi-lobated listeners. And welcome to this October 2015 Science News Update. I'm your host for this lackadaisically Saturnine Science Podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Wow. No email from you guys out there in podcast land this month. Have you become bored with war? Have I just increased your ennui beyond all possible bounds? Do you want to see my minky? Sorry, I lose control sometimes. First story of the night. Why do young children run so funny compared to adults? Now, I always thought it was because they were first learning to run. Until my son and daughter reached five or so, I watched them like a hawk when they were running around outside especially. I was quite worried they would upset themselves while running and end up on their faces. They never looked stable. I mean, this actually seldom happened, but until they reached about six, they looked clumsy as a four-eyed, horny tone on a hot plate. Whatever that is. Anyway, Put it simply, a toddler's stiff-legged waddle is completely different from an adult's fluid run. Dr. Jim Usherwood, from the Royal Veterinary College in England, decided he wanted to know exactly how a toddler's movements were different from those of an adult. 
and he published his results of those studies this month in the Journal of Experimental Biology. Usherwood recruited 18 kids, including two of his own daughters, ranging in age from about one to about five years in age, to find out more about their movements. Keeping the kids amused with balloons and bubbles, he used a camera system to track the position of reflective dots placed at specific locations on the children's limbs as they moved at various speeds along a track. At the same time, he measured the forces that they exerted on the floor. Usherwood was careful not to tell the kids what kind of gait to use. He did, however, ask them to either match their parents' speed or to go faster or slower, to not bias their movements. Usherwood found that since kids' legs are shorter than adults, this allows them less time to push up and away from the ground, providing their muscles with less time to contract and generate the power that they need to move and leaving their feet on the ground for a longer proportion of each stride than adults do. He says, quote, You can see by watching a three-year-old running that they barely get off the ground. Unquote. They built a model that represented moving people as a single piston that was the length of the individual's leg. And Usherwood calculated the amount of muscle required to produce the power necessary to propel the individuals along at speeds that he had measured. This new model successfully reproduced the youngsters' and adults' movements. So, what was the conclusion? Kids move the way they do simply because they are smaller than adults. Their short limbs do not have enough time to produce the high power needed to lift them into the air while running. Not because they are training to be good as adults, but simply because of physics. Okay. Here's a story from Wired Magazine, which... I guess just barely qualifies as science, but it's kind of interesting, so what the heck. Apparently, we have now officially run out of standard internet addresses. If you haven't really realized it, every computer, phone, and wired gadget that you own connects to the internet and has an internet protocol address, an IP address, a kind of numerical name tag for every device online and the internet is rapidly running out of the most commonly used type of IP address, known as IPv4. Today, the American Registry for Internet Numbers, that's the organization responsible for issuing IP addresses in North America, said that it has run out of freely available IPv4 addresses. Now, that isn't going to affect normal internet users, but it's going to put more pressure on internet service providers, software companies, and big organizations to accelerate their migration from IPv4 to, ta-da, the successor, IPv6. I guess Wire reported back in 2011 that the internet had run out of IP addresses, or more specifically, that an organization called Internet Assigned Numbers Authority, IANA, had run out of IPv4 addresses. Basically, IANA hands out blocks of IP addresses to regional organizations like the American Registry for Internet Numbers and all its counterparts around the world. So even after IANA ran out, lots of IPv4 addresses were still available since 2011. But apparently now the regional organizations have run out as well, so there are no more. The president for the American Registry for Internet Numbers 
John Curran, says that the organization isn't entirely out of IPv4 addresses. He says that some are set aside for specific purposes, like exchange sites where connections between different Internet providers' networks meet. But providers that want new IP addresses will have to settle for the version 6 numbers unless old, unused version 4 addresses are returned to the organization. The organization has a waiting list for companies that want to get their hands on some of these recycled numbers. Technologists have known for years that we would run out of version 4 addresses, which is why the version 6 standard was created in the late 1990s. While the version 4 was limited to just about 4 billion addresses, version 6 will provide, get this, 340 undecillion addresses. That's a 1 followed by 36 zeros. Now, you can calculate this. It's enough to give 5 times 10 to the 28 addresses to every single person on Earth. And it's already supported by all major operating systems. The only problem is that version 4 and version 6 aren't entirely compatible. If you're on a version 6 network, you can't browse a site running on a web server using only version 4 without some sort of compatibility layer between them. Unfortunately, the Internet service providers have been working hard to update their infrastructure and support both standards. The next story has to do with advances in brain scanning and what you can do, or soon will be able to do, with those scans. This story comes out of this month's issue of Nature Neuroscience, and the research was done by Dr. Todd Constable of Yale University. Now, the article was entitled, Functional Connectome Fingerprinting. Identifying Individuals Using Patterns of Brain Connectivity. And that title alone is enough to make you go, huh? Let me explain. Constable and his team have developed a method to pick out an individual solely by his or her connectome. What's a connectome? Well, it is the pattern of synchronized neural activity across a whole series of brain regions. Researchers have observed previously that Brain connectivity is a unique trait, but this new study demonstrates that neural patterns retain an individual's signature even during different mental activities. In short, the connectome is a neural fingerprint. Constable says, quote, We were able to show it's not just the functional connectivity, which is how different brain regions are communicating over time when you're not doing a specific task, but even how the brain is activated during a specific task that is also very fingerprint-like. Constable extracted data from the Human Connectome Project, which includes functional MRI data from about 1,200 people so far. The Yale team analyzed imaging data from 268 different brain regions and 126 participants. And they created a connectome profile for each individual, and they measured how strongly the activity of a specific brain region compared to the activity of every other brain region. And this created an activity correlation matrix. Each person, it turns out, has a unique activity correlation matrix. And the team then used this profile to predict the identity of an individual in MRI scans for another session. Depending on the type of MRI scan that they took a look at, the researchers could nail somebody's identity with up to 99% accuracy. Scans during mental tasks rather than resting made it more difficult, and then the accuracy dropped to somewhere around 70%. Still, not too bad. Constable says, quote, 
Even though brain function is always changing, and we saw it slightly harder to identify people when they are doing different things, people almost always look most similar to themselves. Unquote. The ability to identify individuals even during tasks on different days would be important for clinical applications. Think about it. Mental disorders are often classified by phenotype or symptoms that may now represent a variety of underlying causes. And this technology could personalize mental health much better. I mean, we would have more information to say specifically what would be happening in your particular brain. Now, that's only part of the study. The second part of the study will be more interesting for a lot of people. Um, Constable's group was also able to associate a person's connectome with his or her fluid intelligence. This trait is measured by asking people to solve a problem or find a pattern without using language or math skills or learned information. Constable says that stronger connections between the prefrontal and parietal lobes, brain regions already known to be involved in higher-order thought, were most indicative of higher fluid intelligence scores. The results, he says, quote, suggest levels of integration of different brain systems are giving rise to superior cognitive ability, unquote. Yeah, what does that gobbledygook mean? Simply, they successfully used maps of people's brains to accurately predict intelligence. By intelligence, constable means abstract reasoning ability, which they inferred by this mapping and analyzing of the connections within people's brains. But the study is compelling because it gets at a fundamental and probably kind of uncomfortable truth. Some brains are better than others at certain things, particularly because of the way they're wired. And now scientists are closer to being able to determine precisely which brains those are and how they got that way. Imagine in the future, scans could be used to predict if you're prone to addiction, prone to violence, predisposed to having delusions. It's nasty. It's a double-edged sword. You may be able to help a kid learn better in school by determining how their specific brain works, but imagine the schools could then use data to guide admissions decisions. Companies could use that data to hire based on mental aptitude. Insurance companies could base coverage on cognitive dispositions or predispositions. Predictive brain scanning could lead to a whole new form of what we could call neurodiscrimination. Picture this, fellow citizens of Terra. The world could be soon just as stupid as the Divergent movies. Makes you think, don't it? Okay. This may never have occurred to you before, but large animals, like elephants, really don't get cancer very much. Don't believe me? Ask any zookeeper. Go ahead. I'll wait. Ah, see? Cancer just doesn't account for large animal death very often. This is kind of a surprising finding. With about a hundred times as many cells as a human, a 4,800 kilogram African elephant should, in theory, be more prone to accruing mutations that cause one of those cells to grow out of control. But elephants and other large mammals have surprisingly low rates of cancer, despite living for decades. Dr. Joshua Schiffman, a pediatric oncologist at the University of Utah, has wondered about this weird paradox for years. And he has finally examined it, along with his group, in a study published in the journal Nature last month. Schiffman and his colleagues scoured the genome of an African elephant and found 
40 copies of the P53 gene. Now, P53 is a major anti-cancer gene. The Asian elephant genome contains between 30 and 40 copies of P53. Uh, to put that value of 30 to 40 in perspective, humans have two. Two copies. It's a little like 30 or 40 guards guarding a castle as opposed to two guarding a castle. Which is more likely to be invaded? Think about it. Weirdly enough, Schiffman found that elephant cells were no better at repairing DNA damage than human cells. Uh, in vitro experiments revealed that uh, if they got damaged, there really wasn't a, a, a better likelihood that one would be repaired as opposed to the other. Instead, he has results that suggest that P53 helped the elephants kill off precancerous cells before they become cancerous, not after they become cancerous. Another study published October 6th on uh, the server BioRxiv, or is that BioPrescription 4? I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce that. Anyway, it also found dozens of copies of the P53 gene in the elephant genome, as well as dozens in two extinct species of mammoth. Dr. Vincent Lynch of the University of Chicago speculates that P53 duplicated as elephant ancestors began to grow in size, but noted that this is likely not the only mechanism to explain the lineage's cancer resistance. Well, one colleague I know who specializes in cancer poo-pooed these protective notions, and he said this, quote, Yes, those results are kind of cool, and they may even be true. But think about it. Elephants don't exactly live the same lifestyle as humans do. What would happen if elephants smoked and had a bad diet? Would they really be protected from cancer? I doubt it. Okay, so he sounds a bit negative. But you have to give him credit for having a healthy dose of scientific skepticism, which, after all, is kind of really good for scientists to thrive on. All right, next story. More news in the area of epigenetics. In the last 10 years or so, it's become quite clear that parents' life experiences can alter germ cells, and events in parents' lives can influence the health and behavior of their children, and even their grandchildren. But it can be difficult to establish a causal connection between epigenetic changes and changes in behavior and health. Dr. Tracy Bale of the University of Pennsylvania has now demonstrated that an increase in a group of microRNAs in sperm cells from stressed male mice can lead to altered stress response in their adult offspring. And that work was published in the last couple of weeks in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Her study improves on previous ones by identifying specific microRNAs that transmit stress to offspring. Further, the new paper shows that injected microRNAs reduce or completely knock out expression of specific genes in the zygotes, the embryos, which is really kind of the coolest finding in the paper. Now, many of you are sitting there going, he's talking about microRNAs? What is that, a little tiny RNA? Okay, sure. What? Let me explain. MicroRNAs have been discovered in the last 10 years or so. And they are. They're very small RNAs. But most of you may have learned in high school biology or college biology that, that a messenger RNA, for example, is used to, uh, to help make proteins. It's used as a message that's the intermediary between the DNA 
and the ribosome. It's sent to the ribosome, and in the ribosome, it's used to encode for proteins in the translation process. Well, microRNA is generally never translated. It's not used to make proteins. It's a regulatory sequence. So these are short regulatory sequences that actually bind to messenger RNA, and they're used to regulate the, the messenger RNA and whether it's translated or not. If a microRNA were to bind, and they, and they can be directed very specifically at RNAs, so if a microRNA binds to a messenger RNA, then a whole series of enzymatic compounds are directed at that messenger, at that transcript, to destroy it. So microRNAs are used to regulate whether mRNA is going to be used at all. And it's a very, very strong regulatory system. So Bale and her colleagues injected nine of these microRNAs into zygotes from healthy mice and implanted the zygotes in females and then allowed them to mature. The resulting mice showed the same altered corticosteroid release levels in response to being restrained as mice descended from stressed fathers, even though their fathers were not exposed to stress. This suggests that some combination of the nine altered microRNAs is responsible for transmitting that paternal stress to the offspring. MicroRNAs knock down expression of target genes. Using other injected zygotes, the researchers measured expression of those messenger RNAs of nine known targets in the injected zygotes a day after injection. As expected, many of the targets of the microRNAs were knocked down. The researchers also surveyed hypothalamic gene expression in mice derived from zygote microinjections. Why? Well, Bale says this, quote, The hypothalamus is what determines everything about how you survive. Your eating, your sleeping, your circadian rhythms, your stress, your reproduction, unquote. She and her colleagues found that expression of a variety of genes encoding proteins related to collagen and extracellular matrix were reduced. It remains unclear how knocking down expression of certain genes in zygotes via microRNA leads to altered stress responses in adult animals and altered gene expression in the brain. I mean, the, the best known understanding of, uh, of epigenetic controls or regulations are through DNA methylations or chromatin modifications, actually altering the, the three-dimensional structure of the DNA. MicroRNA levels in mammals don't persist from cell division to cell division, so how exactly are they controlling what's going on a generation later. Bale's group will next try to identify epigenetic changes in embryos that might allow microRNA changes to have an effect in adult animals. It's possible that some of the genes that were knocked down themselves may influence epigenetic modifications. That could explain what they're seeing. Now, the last story of the night should probably be barred from sensitive ears, so you may want to just drop out now if either you are sensitive or there are kitties listening in. Not only is there a serious ick factor to this next story, but it does involve, well, reproduction. And no, I don't mean Vulcan reproduction. I will give you a full 10 seconds to opt out starting now. Okay. For those of you who are still with me, 
Remember I warned you. So there are lots of organisms on this earth, and we take for granted sometimes that many, many, do not produce in a way that is even close to the way mammals do. Dr. Stephen Ram and his colleagues in a recent issue of the Proceedings of the Royal Society demonstrated these differences to be an absolute in this very, very strange world that we live in. In short, one organism's trauma may be another's only shot at family life. We all have different ideas of the meaning of trauma. For example, I'm pretty much untroubled by spiders, while I have friends who shriek at the mere mention of a spider. But how about this one? What about a syringe full of sperm shot into your head? I know, ew, but I would say that is pretty traumatic for most people. Macrostomum hysterix is a tiny flatworm with an utterly bizarre sex life. In contrast to mammals with two separate sexes, these worms are simultaneous hermaphrodites, meaning that they are both male and female at the same time. This is not something that is very easily obtained in mammals. It's very hard to develop that way. As a consequence, while it takes two humans to tangle, these worms can go at it alone and self-fertilize. Now, mind you, there are lots of species that fall into this category, so it's not that unusual. And yet the freakiness of macrostomum is the manner in which self-fertilization occurs. What Ram found is that macroworms accomplish this trick by injecting sperm from their needle-like penises into their own heads. And again, I hear the ewes out there. And the more sperm they inject, the more offspring they produce. Why the head? Well, anatomical constraints. It's the easiest spot to reach. Unsurprisingly, hypodermic self-fertilization, also known as, quote, traumatic insemination, unquote, is not the best reproductive choice for these worms. In previous studies, the team found that offspring produced by selfing survived less well and were less fecund than offspring produced by outcrossing. So given these costs, why bother? Well, because they have to. I mean, this is not just a weird kind of sex addiction here. It's an absolute necessity to ensure the next generation of freaky little worms will survive. Selfing involves a crucial problem for macro by assuring reproduction when opportunities to outcross are limited. Most plants can get by on this approach, as do a sizable fraction of animals. So, why not? For a start, selfing animals entirely dispense with the risks and hassles of finding a mate. Additionally, their offspring are, well, 100% their own. However, selfing incurs serious costs, in particular the risk of inbreeding depression in their offspring. Inbreeding depression is the loss of viable offspring in the long term. Because of this cost, worms are quite reluctant to self-fertilize, waiting more than 50% longer than when they are given the chance to outcross. But a worm's life is short. When rams separated them from their potential mating partners, they went straight for their own heads. Cue the ewes. Although peculiar and even a little amusing, the behavior of these worms does make perfect sense from a reproductive standpoint. Some reproduction is clearly better than the trauma of none. 
but what remains unclear is the cost to the worms themselves. You can imagine that traumatic self-insemination may do a worm about as much good as, well, a hole in the head. I guess one of the questions that arises from this is, do they live shorter lives than the outcrossed worms? I mean, do these holes in the heads actually become a problem? And can they continue feeding as efficiently? The answer to these questions remain unsolved. So there is still much to learn about these interesting little creatures. That's all for me for now. As always, take care. Keep watching those toddlers as they run. Put off those intelligence brain scans as long as you possibly can. Don't even consider traumatic self-insemination. I hope I've inspired some of you. Till next time, this is Jim Campanella. There you go, show 408, put to bed. I do hope you enjoyed this one. It's been rather, rather special. Yes, big thank you to everybody, to Animatronic, to Kate Darling, to Mr. J.J. Campanella, Eric Stone and Sue Burke. Thank you so much. And the voice talents of Rob and Jess Arquin. So that is today's show. Like I say, I hope you enjoyed it. What can I say? Come back next week. We've got some exciting stuff on there as well. And again, just throwing in these interviews, you know what I mean? Tell us if you like them. If you don't like them, just see where you go. You know, it's just, it gives me some interest, to be quite honest, because there's some fascinating people out there. And you never know what kind of what turns up. So, And we've got some great ones lined up as well. So until next week, just like I say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.